Good morning once again, Digital Cathedral family. Glad that you're with me on this Sunday morning. And uh, we're going to get into some good things this morning, so I want you to grab your coffee, your Bible, and let's, uh, let's reason together. I was thinking just before I came on this morning of that scripture that says, this is the day that the Lord has made, and we're going to rejoice and be glad in it. It seems like every day is a good day, and it's even better as you're growing into things of God. When, when you are beginning to really open up to things that are spiritual, every day becomes a good day. Now this morning, what I want to do is I want to look at an incident from the life of Jesus in John chapter 2. If you follow me along, you know that we are systematically working our way through the book of John. I'm not doing it verse by verse, actually not even chapter by chapter, but what I want to do is go through the book of John and pick out some, uh, some events, some of the things that Jesus taught that I think have special meaning for us today. So we're going to start in John chapter 2 in just a minute, but to get our thinking going in the right direction, I want to start in John chapter 5 and read two verses that highlight the difference between being religious and being spiritual. So I want, I want you to tap into that vein for just a couple minutes, and then we're going to get over to John chapter 2, <clears throat> where Jesus cleansed the temple. There's so much truth there, so much good stuff. Anyway, let's start with John chapter 5, verse 39. Let's look at the difference between being religious and being spiritual. In John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus says this to the Pharisees. He said, you search the scriptures. And I notice he, he didn't say you search the word of God. See, we've, we have called the scripture the word of God. The, word of, the scripture never calls itself the word of God. And I think there's a very definite reason that, that the scripture has... Uh, achieved or had tabbed on it, the Word of God, by religion. And the reason is because if you call anything, if you call this the Word of God, then what I tell you it says, and the way I interpret it, it's going to be you can't refute it because it's the Word of God. <clears throat> and I'm bringing you all truth in that, in that passage. So it's just been kind of a control thing. It's kind of a manipulation thing, calling it the Word of God. Jesus never calls Scripture the Word of God. The, and actually, the scripture in no place ever says it's the Word of God. That's what we have called it, so that it carries extra weight and authority. So Jesus said, you search the scriptures. For in those scriptures, you think that you have eternal life. Or they're going to find the key to eternal life in the scriptures. He said, and these are they which testify of me. Let me just say, and this is a little bit off track this morning, but let me just say the only purpose of Scripture is to point you to Jesus. It's not to give you a definitive theology. Uh, and I know that's kind of a tough statement because we do pull our theology out of Scripture, but that's not, that's not the purpose. Jesus did not really have a systematic theology. Paul did not have a systematic theology. They lived by revelation. <clears throat> some of it came out of Scripture. Some of it didn't come out of Scripture. Most of it did not. Paul said the things that I've learned nobody taught me. He said I didn't pull it off anywhere. Jesus showed me and revealed to me by revelation. So <clears throat> this is a, a religious way of life right here, is to go to the scriptures to try to find out how to attain eternal life. When the purpose of the scripture is to point you to eternal life himself. And that's what he says in verse 40. He said, you're not willing to come to me that you may have eternal life. That's a life of spirit right there. That's a spiritual life. So we see that a life of religion is one that searches the scriptures, trying to find life. And Jesus said, if you really want life, 
If you want eternal life, the life, word life, there's Zoe, the God kind of life. If you really want that kind of life, then you're going to have to come to me to find it because I am the only source of life. This is not the source of life. The purpose of this is to point you to the life, to point you to Jesus. So let me just, let me say this. Jesus was, was spiritual, but he was not religious. He was spiritual, but he wasn't religious. And that's, that's why I like the book of John, because John really portrays Jesus as, as a man of spirit. He shows so much depth of spirit in the life of Jesus. And so I think just for our purpose this morning, what I'd like to do is just to put a quick definition on religion, on religious and a quick definition on spiritual. Based on the life of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, I think Jesus would approve of these definitions that I'm going to give you. Maybe you could, you could improve on them, make them even better. But here's the way I see it. Here's the way it comes down. I think we could define religious as, as being guided by the law, the right, wrong, um, uh, that which you should do, that which you shouldn't do. Uh, religious is defined by acts of piety, acts of spirituality, trying to be uh, spiritual having a facade veneer of being spiritual. It's, it's filled with uh, dualism, where God is here, I'm here, there's two, there isn't one. And religion is filled with man's attempts to try to close that gap that God's here, I'm here, he's in the sky, I'm on the earth. And so I come up with these, these ways of trying to close that gap and bring the sky God in, into my life. Now, if we look at spiritual, on the other hand, when a man is spiritual, he lives from the inside out. A religious man lives from the outside in. He determines what is right, what is wrong, uh, what is logical, and then he lives by that. And, and he uses scripture, he goes to scripture and finds some guides to try to determine what is right and wrong. A spiritual man lives from the inside. He lives guided by the spirit within. He lives uh, out of union with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. A man that is, that is spiritual does not see God in one place and man in another. He sees them as one. There's no separation, absolutely no separation. Now, we would call the life of, of living by spirit, we could call that a life of, of mysticism, being a mystic. Most of you here at the Digital Cathedral, you're mystics because you're learning to live out of spirit. I know that's kind of a foreign word to some people. It throws up red flags, mysticism and being a mystic. All mysticism is, all being a mystic basically means is that you live by spirit. You don't live by perception. You don't live by what is visible. You don't live by what you see or what you sense. You, 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 see, you see a higher dimension than that. You see a higher realm than that. Your consciousness is developed beyond just what your five physical senses are able to perceive. So in religious circles, living a life of spirit, being a mystic is branded in most circles as heresy. It's looked down upon. Living by spirit is looked down upon by most power brokers of religion. Now they will tell you, yeah, we are led by the spirit, but actually what they're saying is we're led by what the scripture says. We're led by what it says and then we interpret it and that's what leads us. I, I know very few people that are, are willing to say, um, man, I don't know what scripture is on that, but I know what the spirit of God is saying. I know what the spirit is leading me to do. And that's what I'm going to follow. That's looked down upon in religious circles, right? So most, in most religions, especially in Protestant Christianity, it's lived 
out of religion. You're guided by law, you're guided by acts of piety, you're guided by religious disciplines, and you're always trying to close the gap to get God to come and meet your needs, to bless you, to close, close that gap by whatever means that we have perceived that exists between God and man. So here's, here's, why, here's why religion is really opposed to mysticism or living by spirit, being directed by spirit. It's because it puts you, now listen to me, it's because it puts you outside the box of control. It puts you outside of, of uh, looking to religion to find out how to live. It puts you outside the box of control by encouraging you to hear the Spirit, walk by the Spirit, live by the Spirit, and not the dictates of a doctrine or a religious pattern or religious rules. Religion does not like independence. Religion does not want you to live independently. It despises independence. It wants you covered. Have you gone through all those teachings of being covered? You've been told, oh, you need to be covered. You need to get under the covering of a church. You need to get under the covering and be accountable to a system or to a, a, a member of the fivefold ministry. You need to get under an apostle somewhere. You need to be covered. Do you know the, the word covering or covered in the New Testament? does not exist as it pertains to somebody overseeing your life, dictating to you what is right, what is wrong, how to live, how, what, what, how not to live, what is spirit, what is not spirit. There's no, there's no word in, in the New Testament, you can, you can check it for yourself, that, that tells us that you need to be under a covering that is religion's way of smothering you. I don't know how else to say it. It smothers you and it does not allow you to be independent. Hear God for yourself, follow the Spirit for yourself, and to live a life that is that is not dictated to by religion. See, religion has the idea that uniformity is unity. Uniformity is not unity. Unit, unity is is not believing the same thing. See, that's what churches gather around. All the Baptists believe this, all the Charismatics believe this, the Presbyterians, the Lutherans, the Catholics. So everybody goes to their little church that believes what they believe and they hear confirmational biases every week on how right they are. Unity is not based on uniformity, all right? It's not based on uniformity. In fact, Jesus said, there's only one unifying factor and that is love. He said, by, all, by this shall all men know, Baptists, Catholics, Presbyterians, Charismatic, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples, not by your doctrine, not by the fact that you got everybody covered. He said, you'll know that you're my disciples because of the way that you love one another. All right, so we got the two systems here. We got, we got those that live by religion and those that live by spirit. We got those that are, are, are piety driven and those that are, are mystical, that are spirit driven. Jesus, and this is where we're going to start to get into John 2 in just a minute. Jesus was opposed by both the temple priests and the synagogue leaders. That's the religion he came up in. He was brought up in the very religion that rejected him. Sound familiar? You ever been in that place where you have been rejected by the very people that brought you up, that nurtured you? thought crossed my mind this week. I never really thought about this. I was meditating on John chapter 2, Jesus cleansing the temple and the religious opposition that he faced. The thought crossed my mind. I never really thought about it, that probably some of those temple priests and synagogue leaders that were in such 
such opposition to Jesus, Jesus may well have known ahead of time. He may have been raised with some of them. I mean, Jesus was, was coming into the age when you could be a priest. Maybe some of those uh, that Jesus went to the temple when he was 12 and confounded them with his wisdom. Maybe some of those were the very ones that actually opposed him. Maybe Jesus was, had been friends with some of these. I don't know. I can't, I can't prove that. But it just crossed my mind how ironic that would be that those that had nurtured him, raised him, taught him the scriptures were the very ones now that were going to adamantly oppose him. Jesus was a disruptor, you guys. He was a disruptor of what we would call organized religion or the institutional church. It was a pattern of Jesus' life. He did not, he did not go along to get along. That happens in churches. You just go along to get along. Y'all believe the same thing. You don't oppose it. You don't question it. You accept it. Jesus did not accept it. He opposed it. He questioned it. He did not go along to get along. So in John chapter 2, which we're going to look at this morning, Jesus expresses his absolute disdain with the organized religion of the day. So I want to read you out of, out of John chapter 2. I want to read you this little story. And we've all, we've all heard it, we've all read it, but I think I might have some insights for you that maybe you hadn't thought about that, come from, that came from just meditating, chewing on the scripture, putting myself in the story. What I encouraged you to do uh, you know, a few Wednesday nights ago to get in there and just meditate and saturate and let the Spirit of God open it up. So let me, let me read from John chapter two, and I don't usually read this much, but let me read the whole story. John chapter two, verse 13 down through verse 22. It says, in the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. And when he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. Jesus didn't go along to get along. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Don't make my father's house <clears throat> a house of merchandise. Don't make it a house of merchandise. Don't make it a house of business. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. Then the, then the Jews answered and said to him, what sign do you show to us seeing that you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. Then the Jews said, it has been 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. One more verse. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Maybe they didn't believe it up to that point. But all of a sudden, it dawned on them, revelation came. So here's, here's the thought. Jesus went in, man, and I, you know, I think he was a little bit ticked. I don't know. I've heard uh, a, lot of, a lot of teachers say Jesus never got angry. I think he was a little bit ticked here. I think he wasn't angry with the people. He's angry with the system. And I'm going to point that out very heavily here in just a second. So here's a, here's a thought on what Jesus was really opposed to. Jesus was opposed to sin consciousness that filled the temple. Everything that went on in the temple was, was emphasizing man's sinfulness and man's need to do something to be forgiven by God. Everything they were doing was contrary to the mission that Jesus came to accomplish. Jesus came to eliminate the sacrificial system. 
Jesus came to rid mankind of sin consciousness. The, the, the thing that man had to do something in order to be forgiven. What gave us the idea that we had to do something to be forgiven? Don't you think that an omniscient father, an omnipotent God is able to forgive us? In, in, in fact, he did. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 19 says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Listen, not imputing their trespasses to them. So God just made the sovereign decision that I'm not going to count man's sins against him. Now we count our sins against us and we count the sins of other people against us when they sin against us or don't treat us right. And we look at other people and account their sins to them. But God said, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to impute trespasses to them. So Jesus took a very strong stand. What was going on in the temple, I want to drive this point home. What was going on in the temple was the selling of, of, of animals to be sacrificed to alleviate man of his sin consciousness. And that was the system. That's, that was what was happening at that time. So Jesus took a pretty strong stand to prove that that was not the system that was going to last and that, that did not please the religious people. Didn't please them at all. Religion does not like their money-making, get the people manipulated, get into their, their purses, get into their wallets. Religion does not like that, that system that has man, manipulated us to be messed with. If you don't believe me, just go to your evangelical pastor and tell him that tithing's under the old law, that you're not, you don't have to tithe, you're not bound to tithe, that you're not under that, you're not under that, that you're not looking for God to bless you and, and, and you're not going to be under sin consciousness if you don't tithe. You see what happened in the, in, the, in the temple here, they had a very profitable business going on here. Very profitable. There was a conflict of two systems. When Jesus walked into the temple, there's a conflict of two systems. Here comes Jesus, going to rid the, the sacrificial system, going to rid man of sin consciousness. And here's the, the temple and every the priests that were in the temple and those that sold sacrifices, they were making money, man. They, were, they had a business going here. So there's a conflict. And we have much the same conflict today, but today it's the conflict of law and grace. It's the conflict of religion and freedom. It's the conflict of controlling you and you finding freedom in Christ through the truth that he presents to us. So the cleansing of the temple is in all four Gospels. But John records it just a little bit different. I think this is noteworthy. In, in, the, in, in, the, in John's Gospel, the cleansing of the temple happens early in his ministry, right after turning the water into wine. That's the thing that he does. He goes to the temple. And he, and, he, and he drives out the money changers. He drives out, he gets rid of the sacrifices. The other three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it comes at the last week of the ministry of Jesus. I think that's worth noting because Jesus, I love John because John just sets the precedent of Jesus right at the very beginning of his ministry. He wasn't going to put up with this. This was not going to be the way that it was. Religion was not going to have its right away when Jesus was on the scene. And number two, what Jesus says as he drives out uh, the money changers and the animals is a little bit different in John than the other three Gospels. In the first three Gospels, it says this, that my house shall, not, my house shall be called a house of prayer and you made it a den of thieves, right? Now in John, in John he says this, he says, stop making my father's house a house of business. So I would interpret that. He says, don't make my father's house a house of trade 
or a marketplace. Don't make my father's house, this is so good, don't make my father's house a place where a transition has to be made or um, um, a transaction, that's the word I'm looking for, where a transaction has to be made between God and man to make man right. Jesus comes into the temple, he said, what's going on here is a transaction. We still have transactional theology today where man has to do something. He has to confess. He has to believe. He has to pray for forgiveness of his sins. And then God forgives him. It's a deal. I do this. God will do that. Jesus comes in and says, we're not going to do a transaction in this house anymore. You, you are here making my, our, our standing with God a transaction. And it's never supposed to be a transaction. See, a church doesn't want to hear that. Church doesn't want to hear about no more transaction, no more you tithe to be blessed by God. You tithe, the windows of heaven are open. You give sacrificial offerings. I even know pastors now that say, look, tithe is just a minimum. That doesn't get you the blessing. What gets you the blessing is the offering. You give offerings over your tithe. Tithe is just like paying your tax. That just gets you, that just gets you in the game. That's just, that's just putting skin in the game. If you really want to be blessed, then you need to give, and it will be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will men give unto your bosoms. Look, I know because I've I know the game because I've been there. And maybe game is not right word. There's so many pastors that are so sincere. I mean, they're honest. It's it's just a very small few that are, you know, doing things maliciously. They're doing things blindly. But the, the, the fact of the matter is we are doing the same transactional business in the church today that they were doing in the temple. And the church doesn't want to hear it because church has become a big business. In many places, church is a big business. Pastors become more like corporate CEOs and they have budgets, big budgets. So every week he's, a pastor's keeping his eye on cash flow. He knows he has employees to pay. I know what I'm talking about because I've been there. There was, there was a time, there was a time I had two associate pastors, a pastor full-time that was counseling. I had a youth pastor, a worship pastor, children's pastor, and these people all were on the payroll. In addition to that, I had an elementary school that was uh, K to sixth grade, also had a daycare, had a large social ministry, fed bukus of people every month out of our food bank. And every Monday when I would drive onto the campus, we had 50 employees at one time. The, the organization that I, I started, we had 50 employees. Every, every Monday I'd drive onto the campus and I would think, man, I hope when they count the offering, I hope we got enough to meet all of our needs. So the pastor is under pressure. He's got employees to pay. There are families that are looking to him to make sure they're taken care of. It becomes a large business. We had a huge budget. I'm not even going to get into it. I'm just telling you, I have empathy for those guys. I understand you do become more like a CEO. It's just part of the process. You have to, you have to make decisions that are more business-based than spirit-based. And I'm telling you, that's not right. They're doing, we're doing, we did the best we could. We did the best that we knew how to do, right? And it, but here's, here's the problem. It's tough for a pastor in that situation to rock the boat. I'm in contact with a lot of pastors. A lot of pastors message me that say, man, I, I, I dig what you're doing. I love what you're teaching. But if I did it, I'd lose my church. And the fact is, you probably would. It's hard for a pastor to rock the boat when he has a huge budget. He has multiple families that are depending on the church for an income. And it has become a huge 
business. So the, the business has to continually generate more cash and get a cash flow going. And that's exactly, that's exactly what was going on in, in, in the temple. They were generating a large cash flow. They were selling animal sacrifices and that fed the system so that the system could continue to go. So when I began to teach this message, I lost people like crazy. My budget went to hell in a handbasket. We stopped making budget every month. We were going backwards. And that's, it's hard for pastor. It, it's hard to stand up and, and say, look, I, what, I, what I've been teaching, I, I see this in a little different light now, and I gotta begin to teach it. And the people have been there 20, 25, in my case, some of them close to 40 years. I'd been their pastor and they'd heard the message that I'd always taught and now we're changing in the middle of the stream. They can't put up with that because their, their securities are on their belief system. The security in the Old Testament was around what they could dig out of the scripture. So here's Jesus showing up and he's telling them something that's not, you know, uh, cohesive with what they've always been taught. And of course they became angry. People became angry with me and they left, right? That, that happens. And I'm just telling you, my heart goes out to pastors, pastors that message me that, that, you know, they're still in the closet. They know it's right. They know what the road they've been going down is not the best, but it's tough to make a change. So now there's more, there's more controversy in the words that Jesus spoke when he began to, to affect a change within the temple. Now I want you to listen to this message very carefully because he isn't just condemning the role of business and religion. He's condemning the idea, he's condemning the idea of religion as a system of business, a system of being a transaction between God and man, that man does something and God responds. And if man does not do it, then God does not respond. He's making man right with God through a transaction. He's saying, God, looks at us and says, let's make a deal. Let's make a deal. You buy a sacrifice, you give it to the priest, priest will slit its throat, and then through the, through the shedding of that blood, I will cover your sins for another year. But if you don't buy the sacrifice, you don't shed the blood, I'm not, I'm not gonna cover your sins. That's a transaction, y'all. And it's the same thing today. If you pray the prayer, you accept Jesus into your heart as your personal savior, then I won't, I, I'll come and live in your heart. You confess your sins, I'll forgive your sins, but if you don't make that transaction, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna be your father, I'm not gonna be your God. You're lost, you're undone. That's where religion is today. We all cut our teeth on it. Come on, let's be honest, we all cut our teeth on this. We've broken God's law, we've sinned. This is what we, this is what we felt some of, for years and years, some decades, 30, 40, 50 years. We broke God's law. We sinned. We didn't do what we knew was right. And so God's a God of justice. And so religion defines justice as being, as being something that has to be rectified by punishment. Punishment has got to be given. God is only just. He's got, that's not what God means by justice. I'm not going to get off into that rabbit trail, but that's a poor idea of God's justice. God's justice is always restorative. It's, it's making things right. But because we sin, God's a God of justice. He's going to punish us. So it seems the view that we had was this, this omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent God can't just forgive sins. He's got to have blood. He's got to have his pound of flesh. He's angry. He's upset. He's uptight. He can't even look on us. So he sends Jesus 
to take the punishment that we supposedly deserve and we get off scot-free because Jesus takes it. That's exactly what the, they did with the sacrifices. The, sacri the, 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 the lamb had to be spotless. It had to be a perfect lamb. And so that lamb was sacrificed. The bull was sacrificed. The heifer was sacrificed. Had to be a perfect animal. Could not have spot or blemish. And that animal took the sacrifice, took the punishment by giving its life, shedding its blood, and they went scot-free. Now, religion never tells us, and this is, really bugs me now, religion never tells us how the punishment of an innocent person is just or fair. How does, how does God murdering his son, which is what we believe, that God put his son on the cross, God allowed him to be totally beaten beyond recognition instead of us. We're never told how that's just or fair that someone who did no wrong took all the punishment, right? That's called the penal substitution theory of atonement. You can look that up. If you want to Google it, you can read. It's what we all believe, that Jesus, Jesus had the jabbers beat out of him so that we didn't have to. The, in, the innocent took all the punishment for the guilty. How's that just? How's that fair? See, it's seeing salvation as a transaction, and Jesus paid the price for the transaction. That's what we were taught. Christianity inherited all that from Judaism. It really did. The Old Testament sacrificial law was a sin management system based on a transaction between God and man. And that transaction was the sacrifice of an animal, and then God would forgive. It would atone for sin. It would restore to right fellowship with God. Okay? That, that, that's a system, frankly, they made up. There's nowhere in Scripture that God ordained that or God, God uh, endorsed it. I'm going to read you a couple of Scriptures in a minute, but let me go over to Hebrews chapter 10. And just give you a little bit of background on this whole thing because this is extremely important. Hebrews chapter 10. This is, this is good stuff this morning. This is going to set you free from sin consciousness and thinking you have to enter into some kind of transaction with God for Him to forgive you. There's no transaction. God did it by grace. By grace are you saved. For by grace are you saved. You're given wholeness. You're given uh, uh, freedom. You're given deliverance. All of it comes by grace. Hebrews, it's not by a transaction. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 11. Every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Now, objectively, that's been done. There's no improvement on that. He has made the sacrifice for sins for all time. Now, verse uh, 13 is the subjective working out of that. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. Verse uh, 17. Then he adds, And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Isn't it amazing how <clears throat> we learned in church that Jesus paid the price? but yet you have to confess your sin? Why, why do you have to confess your sin if the price has already been paid? If Jesus already took care of it, then why do you have to do something? See, it's a transaction. 
It's not quite good enough. You have to add something to it. So Christianity continually makes Jesus the lamb that pays for our sin and confessing then becomes our sacrifice. 1 John 1.9 was written to Jews coming out of that sacrificial system. So John was taking a little bit of steps at a time. So he's saying, look, we don't have to sacrifice, but if you want to clear your conscience, confess your sin. Agree with God about your sin. Your sin's already forgiven. He's not adding it up. Confess. Homologia. Say the same thing as. Agree with. And you'll understand that he has been faithful and just and has already forgiven your sin and cleansed you from all unrighteousness. So that's not to be your sacrifice that you have to do before he forgives you. That is so jacked up, so wrong. In cleansing the temple, Jesus was doing away with all of this transactional theology, all this transactional religion, all this transactional idea that had been thrown so much into the mix. They actually brought this out of Egypt with them when they had spent 400 years in slavery and much of what they adapted from that culture and the religions of Egypt, they, they came and they kind of wove it into Judaism. It was, Moses did it. Moses did it. It's throwing out the sacrificial system and by extension, Christian sacrificial theology. See, even, even in the Old Testament, Jeremiah got it. God, God never set this thing up. Man set it up. Look what it says in Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 20. For what purpose to me comes frankincense from Sheba and sweet cane from a far country? Your burnt offerings are not acceptable, nor your sacrifice is sweet to me. That smoke that rose up from the sacrifice, that did not please God, those burnt offerings. He was never for this. God was always wanting fellowship with man. He was always wanting the union. He was wanting man to recognize his identity, his authentic identity as divinity. And he could not grasp it. Man always wanted to sacrifice something. So it's pretty obvious your burnt offerings aren't acceptable. Your sacrifices aren't sweet to me. Christianity today is still geared toward sacrifice. And the more it hurts, the better, right? We sacrifice time, we sacrifice money, we sacrifice food, we sacrifice pleasure. And the more you sacrifice, the better it's supposed to be. First Samuel even caught it. Look at this in First Samuel. Let me just read a verse from, from First Samuel. Because even, even, even Sammy got this. First Samuel ch chapter 15. Let me just back up here. 1 Samuel chapter 15, and let me read just verse 22. 1 Samuel, not 2 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22. God says this. Has the, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? He said, he's saying, which one is better? The sacrifice or, or hearing God and obeying what he says. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. So even, even Samuel said, look, these sacrifices don't mean a hill of beads. And, and to heed than the fat of rams. So Samuel is saying, look, we, when we come into a, a relationship, we obey his voice. We're sensitive to his voice. We thought it's better than any sacrifice that you could ever get. Paul brings it home. Paul brings it home by revealing that Jesus defeated all of this. In Colossians chapter 2, I'm being a little bit uh, scriptural basis 
this morning because I, I want you to understand what Jesus was doing when he cleansed the temple. He was doing away with the system, doing away with transaction, doing away with a separate uh, thing with God and man that man had to do something to get God to come bless him to cover sin. He said their sins and, and their transgression, I remember no more. I'm not imputing their trust. Imputing is a, um, uh, an accounting term, means adding up. I'm not adding those up. I'm not keeping a ledger. All the time they told you in church that one day you're going to stand before God and he's going to open a big book and he's going to read all the sins and everything. He's going to show a video of your life. Everybody can see all that you did. That's a crock of baloney. And I'm being polite when I say that. All right, look what Paul said. Colossians chapter 2. And let me start with verse 13. And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made alive together with him, having forgiven you, all trespasses. That was his action. There's nothing in there but you got to ask, you got to you got to beg and plead, you got to bawl and squall and cry. Nothing. And you being dead in your sins and then circumcision of your flesh, he made alive together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses. That was totally, entirely his action. No transaction. His action. Verse 14. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements, all the laws that was against us, which were contrary to us, and has taken it out of the way and nailed it to the cross. So the death of Jesus eliminated all of that. I think it's, it's Romans 10, 4 that says, Jesus is the end of the law to everyone that believes. Verse 15, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Therefore, let no man judge you in food or drink or regard to festivals or new moons or Sabbaths. So there's nothing more to judge man with. There's nothing. There's no reason to judge. Judgment is done. It's over with. He made an open show of it, right? There's no transaction. He did it. I want you to really get settled on that this morning because this is the word of reconciliation that we need to teach other people. It was a one way. It was all one way street. God did it. It was all by grace, by his goodness, by his love, by his mercy. So here's the message. Here's the message. Jesus was in total opposition to any kind of dualistic religion that sees God here and you here too. He didn't, he was opposed to that. He was opposed to the temple system and said it would come to an end. It would come to an end. And it did in 70 AD. It absolutely did. The temple was destroyed. It was never rebuilt. It will never be rebuilt. You can take that to the bank. It will not be rebuilt. There's there are people today that are still looking for the temple to be rebuilt. They're looking to discover. What they're really looking to discover is the Ark of the Covenant and the contents in the Ark of the Covenant, which basically was the Ten Commandments, uh, Aaron's rod, and a pot of manna. They're looking to discover that. They're looking for the whole thing to be reinstituted again. It's crazy. It's nonsense. Jesus made one sacrifice for sins forever. So by cleansing the temple, here's what's going on. By cleansing the temple, Jesus was symbolically bringing that whole system to an end. He said, it's over. He was eliminating all of the dualism. He was eliminating saying, we have to buy a sacrifice, bleed it out, and get our sins covered. He's, and, he, and he, for us today, is, is eliminating this idea that you've got to beg and plead God. Here's your sacrifice. Confess. And then he will come and forgive you. In its place, Jesus puts you and the Father together as one. It's not you here, God here. He says, now you're one. In that day, you'll know that I'm in the Father and you're in me and I'm in you. I, th I think Paul, 
strikingly says it well in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 16 when he says, don't you know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? There's no more temple built with hands. You're the temple. Spirit of God lives in you. No sacrifice has to be made for you to be right with God. You're as right, you're as righteous, as justified, as whole, as perfect. There's nothing broken about your life. That's a, that's a, a, a deception of our minds that we have bought into through religion, that we're something wrong with us, that we're born sinful, we're born depraved, we're born separated. All that is a lie of religion. God didn't create junk. He didn't create you to be separated from him. And Jesus came to eliminate all those, all those ideas of separation. Let, let Jesus confirm this. Let me read a little bit out of John 2, a little bit later in the chapter. John chapter 2, let me pick it up with verse 18. Then the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show to us, seeing that you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple three days, I'll raise it up. Jews said to him, it has been 46 years and you're going to build this temple in three days. Jesus was speaking of the temple of his body. All right, now listen to this. This is religion. Jesus said, I'm done away with the system. This is not working. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them and they believed the scripture and the word which he spoke. So Jesus is saying, instead of a fancy building, instead of big budgets, Pastors sweating it, people uh, uh, giving and tithing, even if they can't pay their rent. I mean, I've heard, I've heard pastors say that, you know, God help me. I probably was guilty of that at one time myself. It's it, it emphasized, you need to tithe, even if it makes you financially short, you need to tithe. And the motive is good. You're trying to get people to, to be blessed, but there's, a, there's something under the surface there that knows that we need to keep the system going. And Jesus is saying that system is not going to survive. Jesus proposed, Paul agreed, on a simplistic spirituality. Not that we would be religious. Not that, that we have uh, uh, dogmas and doctrines and formulas. But that we learn to live from the inside to the outside. That we be spiritual. That we not be religious, but we be spiritual based on the indwelling Spirit of God inhabiting this flesh temple, this is where all the action takes place. It all takes place within us. So if you want to find the Father, if you want to contact Him, don't look out there. Don't look out in the clouds. You ever, you ever watch people when they pray, they'll, they'll a lot of times lift up their heads or when, they, when they're praising, they'll lift up their heads because they're trying to make a connection on something that is outside of them. He's not in a building. He's not down at the church house. He's living in you. So here's what I'm encouraging you to do. Here's what I think Jesus was trying to teach us in the second chapter of John, that we be spiritual but not religious. Somebody said, well, didn't Jesus go to the temple? Absolutely, he went to the temple. He went there to teach in the temple his gospel of the kingdom that is within. Every time he went to the temple, they got upset with him. Every time he went to the temple, he taught something that was contrary. Let me say it again. Jesus didn't go along to get along. He brought the truth. And when you bring the truth, it's going gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna to frustrate that, that spirit of religion. It's going gonna, it's gonna to frustrate that thing that is within people. 
And so as a result, religion was not happy with Jesus. Religion will not be happy with you today. But I'll tell you what, you can be happy with you and you can know that the Father's happy with you. Here's the result of religion not being happy. Check this out, Luke chapter four. I'm gonna start parking this bus here pretty quick. Luke chapter four. My time is pretty well spent up this morning. Luke chapter four, and let me read verses 24. I want you to see how upset they get. Jesus said in Luke chapter four, verse 24, surely I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. Going back to your old church, they're probably not gonna accept what you're saying. They're not gonna accept the way you live. They're not gonna accept your revelation. It's, it's incredible. I have people watch, watching the Digital Cathedral and, and the Secret Place from all over the world. And yet within my own church, where the people knew me I, and, and trusted me, when it came that I began to teach something a little bit different, they, they couldn't handle it. So the people that knew me, my own country, rejected it, but people from around the world outside of that are, are hungry to hear more. I'm glad you're with me at the Digital Cathedral. You guys are so special to me. So verse 24, he said, the prophet is not accepted in his own country. He says in verse 25, but I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel. And I was going to start strapping an atom. Many, is, many, I tell you, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine was throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. So he said, look, he only took care of one. There's all this need out there. All this need you were aware of going on and you didn't do anything. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. Now he goes on in verse 28 and says, all these and then all those in the synagogue when they heard these things, they were filled with wrath because Jesus is saying, you didn't demonstrate a thing. The whole thing that you're believing, there's no demonstration. There's nothing flowing out of you that is that has met the needs of people. He's saying, what, what, why, why didn't you help the people during the time of famine and during the time there were lepers and there were people in need? You did absolutely nothing. And so they, when they heard that, they were filled with wrath. Church gets all uptight today when, they, when, when the message comes to them. You guys aren't doing anything. Look, the, the ball's in your court to get people free. So they rose up and they thrust him out of the city and they led him to the brow of a hill on which the city was built that they might throw him down the cliff. They were going to kill him. They were going to kill Jesus. Wasn't his time. Nobody takes his life. He gives it up when he wants to. But passing through the midst of them, he went his way. I love it, man. When, you, when you're doing what the Father has you to do, when you're right in the center, when you're not, not religious but spiritual, you walk right through the midst of them. They can't touch you. They cannot harm you. So he's putting religion on, on the spot for the lack of demonstration. They want to kill him. They want to throw him off a cliff. The message of Jesus today, and I'm, I'm, I'm closing down, and the message of the sons today should not be about buildings, should not be about laws, should not be about doctrines, should not be about the priesthood, the hierarchy of the church, bowing to a fivefold ministry of some kind, trying to get covered, trying to get blessed. Jesus proclaimed spirituality. He did not come with a message of two, did not come with a message of duality. You find Jesus never proclaiming, God out there in the sky, you're here on the earth. Let me give you some rules. Let me give you some steps to get him to come from the sky to where you are. 
He proclaimed, you are the temple. The Spirit of God lives in you. Jesus never gave us, gave us a set of rules. Jesus never told us what we had to do to get God to come to us. How could he when he said, you're the temple? He emphasized that so strong. Jesus' gospel and the gospel of the kingdom is about knowing who is in you, right? You don't have, you, 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 you don't need to pats on the back from people. Jesus, the last, chat, the last verse of John chapter 2 says Jesus knew what was in the hearts of people. He didn't need the accolades of people. You don't need back, pats on the back. You don't need the approval of people. You got the approval of the Father. When you know who you are, when you know, look me right in the eye. When you know that you are the Word made flesh, when God said, let us make man, that was the Word. And He put flesh on that Word. When you know that you are the Word that has become flesh, and you're living the Christ is us life, and that your temple has been cleansed, you're, you are as righteous and as cleansed as you'll ever be, and you're filled with the life of the Father, you know what? You can enjoy your days. And that's my, I, I want to tell you that, I'm done. Enjoy your days. You're free. You're everything God desires you to be. You're perfect. You're, un, you're not broken. You're not broken. Does that mean there are places in your life that he's not wanting to show up and, and he's going to help cut some ties off? Absolutely. Absolutely. So most of us still got a few little strings on it that he's nipping off. But I'll tell you what, it's getting better and better. It's getting gooder and gooder. And God's here to complete fully within us what he has objectively already got done. Amen? All right, God bless you. I think that's, that's it for today. We're going to pick it up back. Uh, next Sunday morning, we're going to go a little bit deeper in life. We'll do a little deeper life message next Sunday morning. So see you Wednesday night. We'll talk about this Wednesday night uh, at, the, at the Secret Place. Make sure you invite your friends to the Digital Cathedral. Make sure you subscribe to the channel. Hit the like button. Leave a comment. And uh, we'll see you next Sunday morning at the Digital Cathedral. God bless you. Love all of you.